truly a blessing to be able to to be able to worship with such an amazing church family. So I want to thank you guys again, as always. Thank you, um, choir and Easton and our praise team for all the hard work that you put in. And our people in the back who don't often get the credit that they deserve, but we couldn't do it without you either back there with Tommy and Bree, and I see some other faces back there. So thank you so much. Uh, let me make one mention real quick before I forget, because uh, I promised a couple of people I would do this, but we are in a season where we're going to really need some of you. If, you're, if you've been praying about maybe a way you can step up uh, on a consistent basis to help one of the most important ministries of our church, right now we're going to need some help with our hospitality ministry. Um, we've had some some extenuating circumstances where some of the people who were serving faithfully in that ministry have had to step away. And so if you don't believe the hospitality is important, I promise you it is the first impression that anybody gets when they step into this church. And I just want to challenge our church overall in general. You know, when you think about when somebody walks into these doors, maybe they come in here for the very first time, don't know Christ Church from anything, what is the impression that they get? Do they get introduced? Are they being welcomed? Do you go up and talk to people that you don't know? I want to challenge our church. It's something that we need to continue to do a better job of, uh, just simply like we would not ignore people who come to our home for the very first time, right? That would be rude. Uh, so we don't want to ignore people who come into this church for the very first time. And then some of you, I've heard you say, well, well, maybe I'm going to be embarrassed if I go up to somebody and say, hey, welcome to Christ Church, and is this your first time visiting? And they say, well, I've been going to church here for five years, you know? Uh, yeah, that may be a little bit awkward, but you know what? So what? At least you're talking to somebody. At least you're making an effort to reach out and, and let somebody know that you care, and I think it's very important. But if you are interested in learning how to help with our Coach's Cafe, which uh, is doing an awesome job keeping our fresh hot coffee and our biscuits and donuts and things like that, or if you just want to be involved in uh, being a greeter as people come into the church and being able to introduce yourself as, uh, as that first point of contact is so important, please come talk to me about that, or you can shoot me an email, and I'd love to get you plugged in. All right, having said that, uh, obviously today is Father's Day. I saw something this week uh, that I thought I would share with you that I think is all of you could probably identify with um, on Father's Day, and I'm just going to read it to you real quick because I think it's pretty good. So um, when your child is four years old, they say, Daddy, I love you. When they're seven, they say, Dad is my hero. 12 years old, stop embarrassing me, Dad. By the way, I experienced that at kids' camp this year. I was one of the, you know, counselors at kids' camp with my youngest son. He's 11, and I got the, you're embarrassing me, Dad. I did. 18 years old, I can't wait to get out of here, away from my dad. 21 years old, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. Because the 21-year-olds have it what? All figured out, right? <laughs> 25 years old, Dad, can I borrow a few bucks? 30 years old, Dad, can we bring the kids to your house this weekend? We need a break. 40 years old, Dad, I need some advice because I figured out you were right all along. <laughs> How'd you get so wise all of a sudden, right? 45 years old, what time do I need to come pick you up for the doctor's appointment, Dad? 50 years old, man, I'd give anything just to have my dad here with me again. Anybody identify with that? I do thankfully still have my father alive. So, so grateful for him. I know many of you do not. Three things real quick about Father's Day, and then I'm going to get into the message. Number one, 
no matter who you are and where you are with your relationship with your father, maybe your father's still alive and you have a wonderful relationship with him. Maybe your father's still alive and you have zero relationship with him. Maybe you had a wonderful father growing up and he's no longer with you today. No matter where you are in that season of life, here's something we all need to remember. We have a perfect, faithful, and loving Heavenly Father to celebrate every single day. So regardless of where you are, if your earthly father didn't meet the needs that you had in your life, you can rejoice and be thankful because you have a perfect, loving, faithful Heavenly Father who is there for you, who loves you, and who will take care of you. Number two, every day is Father's Day, in my, in my opinion. And I know it's fun, and we, and we celebrate Father's Day and Mother's Day and these things, but the thing about Father's Day is this. Real dads don't quit. They don't take days off. Every day is Father's Day. For real fathers... They don't take a day off. They certainly don't quit on their families. And number three, I heard this said, and I think it's being a dad is more than a job. It is the greatest privilege in all of life or one of the greatest privileges, and I have to agree with that. So hopefully that will encourage you today. I hope that you all have a wonderful day if you have plans with your families to celebrate dads more than anything else to celebrate our Heavenly Father. All right, Acts chapter 17. So I'm going to teach you a message today that I think is uh, very relevant for where we are in our church and in our culture. The message title today, The Living Word for a Dying World. The Living Word for a Dying World. We're going to look at two separate encounters and communities today. We're going to look at Paul and Silas and Timothy as they go into the place called Thessalonica. Everybody say Thessalonica. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, that is still the second biggest city in Greece today. It's by, it goes by the same name. Then we're going to see the Paul and Silas as they have to get out of Thessalonica because of some persecution. They go into another community, a city called Berea, and we're going to meet some interesting Jews who are living there in Berea. And if any of you have ever heard this discussed before, it, it's a, a challenge for every church member, as we're going to see in just a minute, that we all need to be good Bereans. Anybody, you may have heard that before, and you say, well, what does that even mean to be a good Berean? And we're going to see in just a second why that's so very important. But here's what I want you to see in this picture as we look at Thessalonica and Berea. You've got a, a cycle, I believe, in the Great Commission, okay? And it's, I would say if you had those arrows, you know, like a continuous cycle that has an arrow going around and around and around, I think there's three primary components to this cycle, The first is evangelism. So the Great Commission is we're uh, the disciples of Jesus Christ. So now thinking about people who are saved, we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so now we have this, this privilege to go and communicate and share the good news of the gospel to all the world, starting with our neighbors and going out into the nations. So evangelism is the kind of the first stage or or component of this cycle. And then the second component of the cycle is that once we are able to see people receive the gospel and come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, then we have the great privilege to disciple those people. Discipleship is very important in this cycle of the Great Commission. And then the last one is, as we have evangelized, we've, we've introduced them to the Lord Jesus. They have, they have put their faith in Christ. They become a new creation. Now we take them, we begin to disciple them, to train them to what it looks like to follow Jesus. What does a lifelong commitment look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Then we send them back out to go on mission. And as we send disciples back out to go on mission, then what do they do again? They begin 
evangelizing again. You see what I'm saying? And then once they evangelize, and then when people come to Christ, and then we disciple them again, and then we send them back out to go on mission, and then they what? They evangelize again. And this is this, this reproductive cycle that should be taking place in the church so that we're reaching the nation's For the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's what I want to show you this morning. Is that if we fail to do any one of these three components. Or one of these three stages of this cycle. Church growth completely goes away. And if I look at the church in North America. And some of our struggles that we've seen. I'd say in the last you know 50 to 100 years. Somewhere along the way. I think the church has begun to fail. To keep one of these cycles Alive, And you could say, well, which one is it? Well, I think I've seen it. I've seen a decrease in evangelism. And I've also seen a decrease in discipleship. And so I think both of those things combined has kind of given that stagnated place of the church in North America. Every major mainline denomination in the United States of America right now has either plateaued or is what? It's on the decline. The numbers don't lie. Okay, and so we're in a season of diminishing as a church. And my hope and my prayer for us as individuals and as a church is that if we can get back to this, the truth of the Great Commission and being faithful to what God has called us to do, to take a living word to a dying world, is that we can get this cycle of evangelism and discipleship and missions going back again. And we'll begin to see God really reach and grow and bring fruit into the kingdom of God. And so that's where we're going to jump off this morning. So let's look at Acts 17, verse 1. So now we're in Thessalonica. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now again, we've said this many times, but that was Paul's missionary strategy. He first went to the Jews because the gospel, as Jesus said and and Paul was affirmed in, is that the gospel is first for the Jew and then the Gentile. And so Paul would seek out the Jews in the community first to make sure they understood that this Messiah that they had been waiting for and anticipating for generations has come. His name is Jesus. He's proven himself to be the Christ in through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so that's where Paul goes first. And he's reasoning with them. He's proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. And it says in verse 4, some of them were persuaded And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But, as was common in Paul's day in the missionary journeys, many Jews were jealous. And taking wicked men of rabble, of the rabble, they formed a mob and pretty much set the city on fire. You know, when you can't win an argument, you just start a riot. We see that today in in our culture. In many ways, you know, if, if you don't have anything to say of substance to win a, a have a civil discussion with somebody, well, then you may not be able to win the argument, but you can just start a riot and just throw everything into chaos. And then you have some sense of victory, I guess. That's what the Jews approach was here, because they knew that Paul was right. They were jealous. They start a riot, a riot. They get a mob together. And it says they set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason 
Jason was a Greek who was housing Paul and Silas and Timothy. He had opened up his home to them there in Thessalonica. And they were seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, so they're looking for the leaders, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all attacking acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is, there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security or a bond from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So let's talk about the first point this morning. And it's simply this. Christians, it's time we go and turn the world, what? Upside down. It is our calling and our privilege as Christians that as we are light bearers of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are proclaimers of the good news of Jesus Christ, that the power of the gospel is so transforming that wherever we go, it should just radically turn things upside down. The world calls evil good and good evil. We see it now more clearly than ever before. The world calls right wrong and wrong right. The world exchanges truth for a lie and God's glory for man's glory. The world proclaims lovers of self and haters of God. It's a culture of death. It's sickened by sin. So what is the mission of the church? What is the mission of followers of Jesus Christ? We're here to turn the world upside down, to flip the script. To right the wrong, punch holes in the darkness, set captives free, heal the brokenhearted, overcome evil with good, overcome hate with love, replace lies with the truth, replace righteousness in the place of wickedness, and bring the dead to life. That's the mission of the church. It's to shake things up, to get people's attention, to turn the worlds upside down, to see families transformed, to see communities transformed, to see churches in revival again. As you know, it is a heart of mine, and I think it should be a heart of every person in this room, to see our world turned upside down for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's where we are. Either we're going to be agents of change in this process Or we can continue to be anxious and complainers and be either part of the solution, which is what God's called everyone here to be, part of the solution, or we can be part of the problem. And I would dare say that just doing nothing at all is continuing to be part of the problem. And so we don't have as Christians the right or we don't have the privilege to just be neutral in this whole battle in this spiritual war. You know, just being neutral, basically you have made your choice. You've effectively chosen the other side because God says, he who is not for me is against me. And so we want to see the world turned upside down. Now let's talk about that word for just a second. I want to spend just a minute talking about that word world, Okay. There's two main Greek words used in the scriptures that's translated world. The first Greek word I want to share with you today is the word cosmos. Cosmos. Let me give you the idea of cosmos. The cosmos speaks primarily of the system of control that is operating in our world today. Okay, so it's an ordered system. It can refer to the universe and the stars and, and, you know, from as far as the ordered system of the solar system and those kind of things. But it more specifically is talking about the ordered system that is in control over our world today. 
It also can speak of territorial boundaries. We're going to get into that in just a second. But it also can talk about the collective inhabitants of the earth. And so when we hear John 3.16, for God so loved the world, in that context, the Bible is talking about God loved the inhabitants, the people of the earth. Okay, and so there's some different you have to read it in context, but we want to know about this word world. And so that's what it's really talking about. So I would say it would more than likely represent the people on the earth. When we talk about the world or the cosmos, many times in the scriptures it's talking about the system, which is the the collective affairs and the endowments and riches and advantages and pleasures of this World where Jesus would say something like this. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lose his very own soul? Well, he's using the word cosmos there. In other words, what would it gain a man if he gained all of the power and wealth and collective riches of this entire system and yet at the very same time lose his soul? It's like Satan as he took Jesus out into the temptation and he showed him all the kingdoms of the World, He said, all you have to do is bow down to me and I'll give you all this. Because he wanted to give him the crown without having to go through the cross. But Jesus effectively fought that temptation. Just like you and I are called to do the same. There's a second word for world in the scripture. And that world is oikomene. Oikomene. Now remember a couple weeks ago we talked about your oikos, your household. Well, this is kind of the same root word here, oikomene, and it refers primarily to territory and boundaries. So it, it more refers to what I want to kind of help you understand this morning is that when Paul, when the people in Thessalonica speak of the Christians there, they said, these men, these followers of Jesus, they've turned our oikomene upside down. What are they saying? Here's what they're saying. These guys are stepping on our what? Turf. These guys have crossed a line. As long as they keep to themselves and they don't affect the, our daily affairs and the things that we have going on here in our culture, we like our pagan world the way that it is. We like the money that we make. We like the immorality that we're living in. We like the control that we have over this city. He's saying, but these men, everywhere they go, they're turning the whole community, our turf, upside down. They're crossing over into our territory. That's what he's saying right here. Now, let's think about from a context of the world when we talk about the gospel. Listen to this. Jesus is the creator of this world. He's God, the creator God. Man was initially to be the inheritor of this what? Of this world. Remember when God turned things over to Adam and Eve, he made us in, the, in, the, in his own image. And he said, listen, I'm giving you authority to go and have dominion over the earth and go and multiply and be image bearers of God everywhere that you go. So that was the initial plan. But then Satan is the usurper. He, he stole that which was rightfully ours and he deceived man. And he led us into sin and he took the authority kind of in that simple way. As Adrian Rogers said, he took the title deed of the earth away from mankind. And now he is called the present ruler or the prince of this, of this world. How else could Satan turn around and offer Jesus the kingdoms of this world if he didn't have what? Control over it. So now we have Satan, who's the present ruler of this world. We have Jesus, who left heaven and entered into this world 
for a specific purpose. We know that purpose was to destroy the works of the devil, to reclaim the kingdom, to restore mankind of what we had lost. But you know, Jesus, who made the world and entered into his own world, the Bible says, was turned around and he was rejected by the world. It says he was rejected by the very world that he created. Think about the irony in that. But Jesus, motivated by his love, is where we get to that John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he was willing to die for his own enemies and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he died for the collective sins of the world. You know, 1 John chapter 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. One of the most amazing verses in all Scripture. Then Jesus proved that He had overcome the world. Remember what He told His disciples? He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Why? Because I have I've overcome it. I've overcome the world. Of course, He did that through His death and resurrection. Jesus is the only Savior of this world. Jesus said His kingdom is not of this world. In other words, His kingdom is already here, but not yet. Are y'all staying with me? The kingdom is a mysterious thing because those of us who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ were immediately added as citizens into His kingdom. But has the kingdom come as He taught us to pray in full? Has it? No, it has not. So the kingdom in one sense, yeah, we're kingdom citizens, and so it's already here in a spiritual sense, but the kingdom in its fullness has not yet come. It's already here, but not yet. Because his kingdom is not of this world. All who trust Jesus are delivered from this world, from that domain of darkness. All who reject Jesus and seek to gain the whole world will lose their very own soul. We are commanded not to love the what? Do you know that? Don't love the world. Matter of fact, the Bible says whoever loves the world is an enemy of God. You can't, you can't have both. We're commanded to be his witnesses and proclaim the gospel to the whole world. And one day Jesus will return to establish his kingdom on the earth and he will create an entirely new world. Think about that one word and how involved it is in the whole plan of redemption. And Jesus is calling you and me to take part, to partner with him right now in this place, in our lives. And he's saying, I want to shake things up. I want to flip the script. I want to call that which is good, good. I want to call that which is true, true. I want you to be my light bearers and my good news bringers. I want you to turn the world upside down. And that's where evangelism plays a part in our life, is that when we bring the life-saving good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to people, let me tell you something, when somebody has an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't have a choice but to change. Think about that. That's why, you know, when when we talk about true salvation, you know, I'm not a judge of who's saved and who's not saved, but I do know one thing. If you know the same God I know, if you've met the same Jesus I've met, something in your life has got to what? It's got to change. How can you remain the same when you have a relationship now with the God of the universe, the creator of all things who came to die for you, who wants to live in you, who wants to be your God, your Lord, to lead you, to give you this resurrection power, and you're telling me that nothing in your life has changed? Your world hasn't been turned upside down? It's hard for me to believe. So there should be some kind of evidence there. That's that evangelism. Number two, 
Let's continue reading as we look at verses 9 through 15. And and take note of this. It wasn't Paul and Silas that said they were the ones turning the world upside down. Guess what? It was the lost pagan heathen Greek people who recognized, hey, they're the ones stepping on our territory. They're turning the world upside down. And they didn't like it. Why? Because every time Christians are doing what they're called to do and they're being faithful in their mission to evangelize, guess what? The enemy hates it and he is going to push back every single time. You're going to face opposition. You're going to face hostility because that's the way the enemy works. The devil hates it when we do the job that God's called us to do. But let's continue reading in verse 9. Verse 10, excuse me. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, and so they got them out of Thessalonica. They sent them to Berea. I love this. And it says, When they arrived, they went again to the Jewish synagogue. Now look at what it says. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now remember, the Jews in Thessalonica, there were a few who were persuaded, but the majority of them caused a riot. They didn't want to engage on an intellectual level. They couldn't win the argument, so they said, let's just start a mob. But at least the Jews in Berea had enough nobility, is the word that they used, but they had enough civility in them. They said, hey, you know what? I want to hear what these guys have to say. They wanted to at least listen And be willing to reason with them. Listen to what it says about the Jews in Berea. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. So they were eager. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Underline that in your Bible if you need to. They examined the scriptures daily to test what Paul and Silas were saying. Many of them, therefore, believed. Now in Thessalonica, only some believed. They weren't willing to receive the truth. But here in Berea, what does it say? How many believed? Many believed. Because they were at least open-minded enough to listen to what they had to say. It says, many of them believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as men as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Man, these guys just can't get enough, right? They're like, it's bad enough that we started a mob in our own city, but now we're finding out that they took this gospel to Berea. Hey, let's go on down there and cause a riot as well. Look at what it says. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul on his way out to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So not only are we called to turn the world upside down, but number two is that it's time that we grow and learn to turn the word inside out. Every mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who learns to investigate and study and examine the scriptures inside and out for themselves. Everybody, that's what it means to be a good Berean If I tell you something and you look at me and say, Pastor Marcus, I want to be a good Berean and I'm going to go check out what you just told me. I want to study it for myself. Guess what? You'll get a commendation from me every single time. I will say, amen, please go do that. I wouldn't have it any other way. If you hear a preacher on TV preaching anything on TV, maybe you've heard it before, maybe not. Maybe it kind of raises a little tingle or a little red flag and you're like, you know what? I don't know about that. Go check it out. Be a good Berean. Go examine the scriptures every single day. Go investigate. Go turn over another leaf. Go get into the scriptures. Go dig inside and out. That's what it means 
to be a good Berean. Now let's talk about three groups of people real quick about this, this idea of turning the word inside out. The first are lost and rebellious sinners. Now when we engage people through evangelism, most people that we talk to, number one, they don't care about our Bible. They don't believe our Bible. They don't want you quoting the Bible. They'll laugh and mock at the Bible. And so we have to understand that until they're willing to investigate things for themselves, they may be more like the the people in Thessalonica. You see, the Word of God through the proclamation of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, the Word of God has the power to penetrate the hardest heart of a sinner, and it will begin by doing this. It'll turn his heart inside out. A sinner's heart must be turned inside out before he's ready to really become a disciple. And you're going to run into those people all the time. Does that mean that we stop preaching the gospel and proclaiming the good news? Absolutely not. I mean, I struggle with this all the time. Matter of fact, I have a personal situation going on in my life right now where there's somebody near and dear to me in my life, and they don't want to have anything to do with the gospel or the word of God. And I'm sitting there thinking, God, can you not just get into his heart, just open up his heart, just turn his heart inside out, just just open it up for him to see for the very first time? that you are God and that you love him and that you have died for him and that he can begin to see and receive what you have for him. But until that happens, guys, really, there's not a whole lot else that we can do but pray and pray that God would do that work in their heart. And so we need to understand that. Now, the second thing, though, is that there are people like the Bereans. And maybe you've run across these people before. And these are people who... They like to talk and dialogue and discuss and debate. They like to consider themselves to be open what? Open-minded. And and I appreciate those people because they're not just going to shut you down the minute that you say, well, I'm a Christian and let me tell you what the Bible says or let me tell you what the gospel is or let me share my testimony with you. And they don't just immediately shut you out. At least they're willing to what? To listen. They have an open heart. They have an open mind. And there are many people out there who are like this. And if you find somebody like that in your life, listen, keep investing in that relationship because as long as they're willing to listen, God is willing to work. I believe that with all my heart. But there does come a point for some people, I've met these people as well, where all they want is for you to prove your faith to them, for you to prove that God exists. And they want want more and more evidence. You know what? And you, you answer their question and they come back with three more. And you answer those three questions and they come back with five more. And you answer those five questions and it just keeps going and going and going. Listen, let me tell you something. There comes a point where only reason and logic can take us so far. We have a reasonable faith. The Christian faith is founded and grounded in reason and logic. The Christian faith does not contradict reason and logic. The Christian faith does not contradict science. Science exists today because of the Christian faith. All modern science, all the founders of the branches of modern science today were either Jewish or Bible-believing Christians. If we didn't have Bible-believing Christians and Jews, we would not have any of the major branches of modern science today. Faith and science, faith and reason do not contradict, okay? But there does come a point where your, your logic and your reason can only take you so far because at some point God calls us to trust Him by by faith. It is impossible to please God without, without faith. 
And so based on the written testimony of God's Word and the, the creation itself that proclaims the glory of God and everything in between, we all have to reach a point to put our faith in Jesus Christ. It's like one atheist who said this, if God is real, then why doesn't He just show Himself to us and prove it? To which someone responded, He already did that and we nailed Him to a cross. You see what I'm saying? In Jesus Christ, God did reveal Himself in human form as the greatest witness and testimony that God is real and that God is Savior of the world and that He is the one who created all things and He does hold the power of death and life and that He was resurrected from the dead to prove who He was as the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we understand that as a good Berean, those people who at least are open to have these discussions... We need to take advantage of sharing the gospel with them, but at, at one point and at some point, we're going to have to call them to the place where, listen, I've answered as many questions as, as I can. I've given you as many reasons why I believe and why you should believe. At some point, you just have to put your faith in the one who died for you. Number three, you and me. Or let's assume that most of us in this room are, are faithful, Bible-believing saints of God. Okay, we're Christians, we have a relationship with Jesus, we've been saved for quite some time, we are the disciples who are on this lifelong journey to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something about a disciple. We should never stop growing. Do you ever come to a point this side of heaven where you have arrived as a Christian? We never do. And so by the grace of God, if he allows me to live to see 90, I hope and pray that I'm digging and praying and studying the scriptures as fervently at 90 years old as I am right now at 40 years old because I realize that I have so much yet to learn. I have so many areas to grow. The depth and riches of God's grace and knowledge are endless. We could, we could, we could dive and dig for, for millions of years and never reach the point to where we understand it all. And so we never reach a point where we stop Growing, But let me tell you what discipleship is. It's that hunger for the Word of God that nothing else can satisfy. It's that desire to go deeper into the internal truths of God's Word. I like this. Discipleship is wanting to know as much about the Word of God so that we can know so much about the God of the Word. Because that's where we know about God. That's how we come to have a deeper relationship with God is through the written word. If you read this passage again, pick up on how many times it says that Paul reasoned with the people both in Thessalonica and in Berea. He reasoned with them through the what? Through the scriptures. He didn't stand up talking Greek philosophy. He didn't stand up teaching self-help and, and feel-good stuff. He said, I'm taking the scriptures and I'm going to reason with you and prove that Jesus is the Christ through the word of God. So let's talk about what that word means, examining the scriptures. Think about what the Bereans did. They examined the scriptures daily. Let me ask you a question. Is daily Bible study part of your life? It should be. It could be five minutes, it could be 50 minutes, but it needs to be daily. It needs to be putting the word in us every single day in some form or fashion. If you have a long drive to work like I do, Put the scripture on your Bluetooth or on your radio and listen to it. 
Find ways to go deeper and to get the Scriptures in your heart daily. The Bereans were open-minded. They were carefully considering and weighing what the word of Paul and Silas was. They were deliberate. They investigated. They were combing through the details. They were discussing freely. They were able to test and teach. Excuse me, they were able to test what others were teaching. It's very important, guys. Let me tell you something. We're in a time right now in the North American church especially, but really all over the world, where there is more false doctrine and there is more mass deception, I believe, going on than at any other time in human history. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because we don't know the Word anymore. If you don't know and if you're not grounded in the truth of Scripture, you are so much more susceptible to believe a lie. Isn't that true? And I, think, I see that happening more and more and more. When you see compromises taking place and you see preachers teaching false doctrine and you see people just eating it up like it's candy and they think that it's so good, but yet they're following and believing a lie, it's because if we're not grounded in the Scriptures, we are going to believe the lie. And if you don't think Satan is crafty and he knows exactly what he's doing by subtly taking the truth and he'll take a lie and he'll package that lie in a beautiful little package with a bow on it and say, here, doesn't this look good? Doesn't this sound good? And if we're not careful, we'll take that hook, line, and sinker. I wanted to share this with you real quick because we're going to go into a little demonstration and... I didn't realize that time had gotten away from me a minute. I'm going to go into a little demonstration as we kind of wrap some things up. I'm going to see if Tommy can bring this up. So, so here's where we are, and I'm just going to challenge you guys in this. Right now, North America, we have more access to biblical resources than any generation that has ever lived on the face of the planet. Y'all think about that for just a second. Has any generation alive in the history of humankind ever had more access to resources, Bible resources, study tools, uh, books, journals, devotions, concordances, whatever it may be? And yet, I would have to say this, we may be the most biblically illiterate generation that's ever been alive since the birth of the church. Why is that? How could that be? We have more resources, and yet we're the most biblically illiterate generation, maybe than any other generation that's ever been before. I want to show you a tool. Now look, I'm doing this because I want you all to see this is what I use right here. Guess what? You know how much this cost me? I've put zero money into this tool. When I get ready to do a sermon preparation or teach a Bible study, I open up Bible Hub. If you want to write it down, write it down. It's called Bible Hub. B-I-B-L-E-H-U-B, BibleHub.com. This is free. It's on the Internet. Now, some of you may want to know how to study your Bible and go a little bit deeper and know how to examine the Scriptures. Maybe you say, hey, what translation do you use, Brother Marcus? Well, guess what? I use all of them. And they're so accessible. So watch this. All right, so I'm going to ask Tommy. Tommy, type in, uh, type in Acts 17 there at the top. See if we can get this thing going. 
It's there. All right, so scroll, scroll down, Tommy. So there we have Acts 17. Go on down to verse 10. So here's the Bible. It's in, it's in a translation here. We find verse 10. He's going to click on verse 10. All right. Now, scroll down a little bit, Tommy. All right, here's Acts 17.10. Now, look at the different versions. There's the New International Version. There's the New Living Translation. There's the English Standard Version. There's the Berean Study Bible. Uh, it has the King James Version. It has about, I don't know, 20 different versions of Scripture. Very good tool. You can look at it in all these different types of versions. Whichever one you like, it's fine. But let's say you're thinking, okay, I don't know anything about Berea. What is Berea? Well, let's just go, go back up, Tommy, to the top. Look at the topical. Click on topical. And then let's scroll down, and we're going to look at the places in this passage. And Berea is one of the places. There it is, Berea. Click on Berea. All of a sudden, you have a map. You have the whole historical context about what is this city, Berea. What's the Greek context? Where is it in the Mediterranean? You know, you can go in and read all the history about Berea. Let's go back to verse uh, 10, Tommy, real quick. I'm just going to show you this real quickly. If we go back, go back one more time. Go to the Greek. It's okay. Go to the Greek over here. So now you may say, well, I have all these English translations, but I want to know what's the... Because the New Testament predominantly was written in which language? It was written in Greek. I don't speak Greek. I got away with as little Greek in seminary as I possibly could. Do you know why? Because I don't have to know Greek. I, can, I have a free tool right here that shows me every Greek word in that verse... What its original meaning is, guess what? It shows you all these other verses where that Greek word may be used in the Scriptures. Are y'all, are y'all tracking with me? Look, we can do this all day long, but what I want to show you right now is that this is free. And let me tell you something. Bible Hub is probably one of a dozen other online free resources like uh, Uversion and Blue Letter Bible and so many others, Logos and all kind of software. Here's my point, guys. We don't have a what? An excuse. I just, I, just, I just took away all your excuses that you can't study your Bible or you can't know more about the Bible or you can't dig deeper and be a good Berean. Guys, we have so much capability, so much at our fingertips, and we're simply just not taking advantage of it. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. i got three last things for you as we finish. It's a time to show a dying world what life is all about. Hey, here's what I want you to do. The word, word, W-O-R-D. What's the difference between the word, word, and the word, world? We're missing an L. Three things. To take the word to the world, which is what we're called to do, to take the living word to a dying world. Three things I think have to be part of our lives. Number one, we have to be motivated by this word that starts with L. The what? The love of Christ. Why do we even do what we do? If you're not motivated by the love of Jesus Christ, then you're not going to be an effective witness. Neither am I. The second thing is light. In order to take the word of God to the world, we have to bear light. We have to shine 
the light of Christ. And that could go in so many different directions from, from casting darkness out by telling the truth, by showing the love of Christ in our practical acts and deeds. I mean, you could just go a hundred different directions about what it means to be light bearers of Jesus Christ. And the last one is this, life. Because at the end of the day, when you bring the life-giving good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to someone who is lost, let me tell you something, guys. That doesn't just change their world and turn their world upside down here. That affects and influences their eternity. And if there's anything that we're here for, it's to make sure that we know where we spend eternity. 70 years, you might get 80. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Our life is like a vapor. What matters is where are you going to spend eternity. And there is a completely lost and dying world out here right now, guys. People dying every two and three seconds, every single day of every year. And they're dying and they're going in, into eternity of eternal death and separation from God. As we get ready to go, we're going to sing one more song. Look, guys, all I'm asking you to do is this. Just start being a better Berean. Let the Word of God get in your heart so that it overflows into other people's heart. If you need more resources, if you want to know God's Word better, if you want to be a better student of the Word of God, that's what we're here for is to help you. But I'm going to tell you something, guys. There's so much good stuff out there. It's free. There's no excuse. And if you don't have the desire, you might ought to get down on your knees today and you might say, God, I don't have a desire to study your word. So you need to what? You need to give me a desire. It's okay. There's no shame in praying that. And he will. I believe that with all my heart. He will give you the desire. So let's all stand together as we pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much for this day. As we get prepared to sing this last song, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to work and change our hearts, turn our hearts inside out. Let us be students of the Word as we learn to turn the Word of God inside out. Lord, there's so much there, Lord, that brings so much edification to our life, and we're missing a lot of it, Lord, because we simply don't know how or we don't want to. And I just pray, Lord, that if there's anybody in this room who is stuck in that place, that you would change their heart and give, them, give us all a greater desire to be better students of the Word so that we can go and take the living Word to a dying world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,